Startup Stories DSM features conversations with entrepreneurs in Greater Des Moines, Iowa, who share their stories of what worked and what failed on their entrepreneurial journey. This podcast is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. I'm your host, Mike Caldwell, Executive Director of Entrepreneurial Initiatives at The Partnership. Brian Gerhardy, welcome to Startup Stories. Where did the name Pitchley come from? That's a good question. Um, it came from the original vision of improving the pitch. So Pitchley was short, simple, and it was at a time where the LY names were very popular. So it was uh, pretty obvious after that. Right. So I take it you could find the URL and not have to pay a stack of money for it? That's right. I found the .NET relatively cheaply. Yep. Um, and then we actually just got the .com for a, a small sum as well. So that was good too. Yeah, get it early. You grew up in Australia. What advantages did that provide you in working in, in venture capital? I think Australia, it's a very different market, but it's similar to Des Moines, is that it's a, it's a small country in itself um, with a number of people. So there's a lot of opportunity. You need to seek it out and find it and invest in it. But um, it's a great place to um, develop experience quickly. Um, we graduate with a three-year degree in a very specialized field like quant finance, wow. and then you're unleashed to the, uh, the world and the working class at 21. So it's, um, it happens quickly, which I think is advantageous. I think it is too. Are there things uh, uh, we in Des Moines, or for that matter the whole U.S., could learn from the business world of Australia? I think there's, um, there's two sides. There's things each other can learn. Um, something I saw in Australia was the... You know, Australians, the typical mantra is you work to vacation, um, not to work. So you kind of spend your time um, enjoying your four weeks of annual vacation that's provided and then you work around really hard the rest of the year. Okay. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a mantra I want to bring, you know, here um, and with my team. And so we've unlimited PTO, for instance, right. and mandatory two weeks a year. Um, and our preference is they do that back to back because everyone needs a good break. Um, and I think that's it's it's nice to have it. Um, I think it also means the rest of the team needs to step up because if someone's gone for four weeks or five weeks or six weeks, which is very common in Australia, right. you need to backfill that really quickly. Yeah. So well, no one is indispensable, which I I think is important in a small or large company. Well, and as all the companies do a better job of dealing with you know time off for people who've had children mm-hmm. or have parental issues, you know, where I I am part of the. I don't really help take care of my mother, but I have an 85-year-old mother and my brother. It takes a lot of time. Mm. Uh, you know, I think about those kinds of things and think that's another thing we have to be ready for in businesses is sometimes people have to say, I have to go take care of somebody for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. They're ill. So I, I agree with that. What brought you to the U.S.? Uh, so it wasn't the weather, um, certainly for <laughs> Iowa. So my wife is from Iowa. And so we actually got married in southwest Iowa in 2010 um, and moved to Sydney where I was working in uh, investment banking, corporate finance uh, in Sydney, Australia. And then, you know, we always thought we would move to the U.S. and always wanted to move to the U.S. And when that discussion came about, it was started off as New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Okay, I was in banking. I was, you know, in corporate finance. And then as time went on, we both realized that I don't really want to do banking and we didn't want to live in another big city. And so... Um, Iowa got more and more attractive, and also as the ecosystem here improved um, and kind of grew in the venture capital, private equity, that sort of space that I was really interested in. What year did you um, get here? I'm trying to remember. 
So I got here in 2014. Okay. Um, so the start of 2014, um, started coming over here at the end of 2013 and looking for opportunities. And I think I met you when you were first doing that yeah, search. That's right. Yeah. And so yeah. that was where I came here for kind of four weeks and had 60 coffee meetings and lunch and drinks oh, to kind yeah. of get a lay of the land and ask people like yourself, Mike, to who else should I meet? Um, yeah. And then yourself, you know, Chris Sackett, the connectors in town kind of introduced me very quickly to the yeah. people I needed to meet. You know, it's funny. That is true about Des Moines. If you can find the right connector point, you'll mm. get connected very quickly. People are really friendly about that. I've been working. You know, I got involved in the insurance industry through the insurance accelerator and, and people were just yeah, sure, I'd be happy to introduce you, and I'll be happy to connect you to the CEO of this company. And mm. you know, sometimes these are 5, 10, 20,000-person companies. It's not easy to get into that CEO's office year. He may be a very, very busy person. Yeah, and I so think it, it's amazing. Uh, I remember when we moved here, my wife was uh, mortified that I was emailing all these people saying, can we, can we meet? I'd love to meet you. Uh, for coffee or drinks or lunch and you know being the midwest girl she is she was like people don't do that in iowa you don't just come here and shoot off emails and phone call people relentlessly till they answer your response um and i think it it's you know it's a mentality that you know probably separates people that want to start something um and that want to kind of push the envelope and want to meet people and go out and do that you know i i know i I know where she comes from but i got to tell you the people will meet with you they will if you're kind about it you just make an ask i mean if you if you don't if you i mean if you say i want to i want you to invest a hundred thousand dollars blind without meeting me sure yeah that's gonna work but if you say i just want to learn i just want to get find out what the environment's like and Mm -hmm. People are pretty good about that. And if you read the book, How to um, Win Friends and Influence People, it always says, what's in it for them? You know, why am I meeting with you? And for me, it was I had a private equity, venture capital, investment banking background, and I was unique coming here. So how can I help your business? Absolutely. With my skills. So So you talked about your wife. You're married and you have two young children. Mm -hmm. Uh, I see you, Beth and I run into you a lot of times in the community out and about. How are you making time for both? Because you now you have a third child called your startup. Yes, I that's I should right. Say it that way. Yeah, um, I think it's it's important to have the support of everyone at home. Um, so my wife's been incredible with the transition of moving from full time employment with a you know stable job with Next Level Ventures and then moving to um, Pitchley full time and kind of write my own destiny. And I think that's important, but it's also very important to. Um, understand that there's not always a work-life balance it's a co-mingling and you you make it work however it is um and we're partners in that so if something needs to be done then we figure it out i like the way you said that because i I never like the term work-life balance Mm -hmm. my wife had a a very strong uh, career going and when we decided to have a child she made the decision consciously to leave the career because she didn't feel and neither one of us felt that we could do both Mm -hmm. both still work full-time and for me at the time, and this was the trade-off, I had the higher income simply because of the career path I'd gotten into, and I was traveling all the time. Yeah. You know, I was traveling internationally, and so she really had to step up and take on. She, she's run the financials for our household since the day we got married. I've, I haven't looked at a checkbook or anything for thirty mm-hmm. years. You know, it's, uh, it, it has to be a partnership. It does, and it, I think having children for me prioritized what's important you know i have a lot less hobbies than i used to um, because you just don't have time you want to i want to spend time working on pitchley i want to spend time with my wife and then time with my children and so there's not a lot of time for other 
um, you know, sports watching or things like that right. because right. all my hobbies are in one of those three now. Um, yeah. And that's kind of a new lens you need to put put on. You can't be as selfish as you used to be. No, you can't. At least with sporting events now, you can watch them after the fact. So mm-hmm. I, I'm an auto racing fan. So for me, YouTube has been a thrill to be able to go watch last week's IMSA race or something mm-hmm. at, yeah. you know. 11 o'clock in the evening after best gone to bed. That's right. <laughs> so, on the dual monitor for me. I always watch things on my second monitor while I work uh, at night. That's, yeah, my, yeah, yeah. that's my trade-off. So you spent next, several years at uh, Next Level Ventures here in Des Moines. Mm. Uh, in that time, you saw a lot of local entrepreneurs pitch. I, and I was thinking about this because um, your role was really looking at them long before they were ready for yeah. true capital, a big capital. Um I'd be willing to bet you've seen more Central Iowa entrepreneur pitches in the last few years than anyone else in the community. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more first about your role and what you were doing at NLV, uh, mm. both when you started and then where you were by the time you left. Yeah, uh, great question. So I started in um, May of 2014 and um, until June or well, end of May 2018. So, yeah, four years. Um, so my role – it. It morphed into a little bit of everything towards the end, but initially it was helping boots on the ground to meet companies that have potential to raise money, are thinking about it, or even not thinking about it, um, which we actually find is pretty often in Iowa. Um, And then it's working with them to um, understand what they need to present to a company and what is exciting for someone like Next Level Ventures, and if that's the path they want to go, helping them through that process. And then it was really about working with the team at NLV to look at the assess the opportunity, conduct the due diligence, come together on terms and discuss that, and then go through that investment process from our end, um, and also then work with the company on an ongoing basis. So board observer seats, things like that. So when you've got a kind of five person kind of team, um, you kind of do a bit of everything, and you each roll up your sleeves and and do it um, as needed. So it was great experience so coming from that perspective have having seen a lot of these what are our local entrepreneurs doing wrong when they're pitching for funding i mean what do they need to change to become better at raising capital i think there's a i don't know if they're doing anything particularly wrong i think they could do more to do it right in the sense that meet with next level ventures or many of the other people in the ecosystem before and ask people with experience how do you raise money what do i ask for what am i looking for um, Federico is the new associate at Next Level Ventures. Right. Grab a coffee with him and just talk to him about it. Um, see if it's right for you. See what um, gets the team excited, what gets Scott and Craig excited. And if that's yeah. a vision that makes sense, then then go for it. Um, yeah. I think the, there's a tendency to be intimidated for asking for assistance, um, but it, it helps. It's actually, I think that's one of the big benefits I see is um, you know, you want to lay out the good, bad, and ugly from day one and then show a potential investor or advisor the improvements you've made over time because no one's got it figured out in day one. And I think entrepreneurs here are very reluctant to tell you the bad stuff. They'll promote the good stuff very quickly and they'll promote what's working, but they get very concerned when the question or line of questioning comes, so what isn't working? And that's not a defensive position no because we work with small businesses we know things are not working all the time well a lot of times the value of having an outside investor is beyond the money yeah it always is beyond the money but it's they know things you don't Mm -hmm. they have experiences you don't have they have a 
uh, 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 the old style version was called the Rolodex, but they have a contact list of people that have already solved that problem. Yeah, exactly. And they can find the person that can help you solve it. And I, I want to go back to what you said about pitching before you're ready. I, I think that I've had people say, well, I talked to Next Level Ventures, you know, once. Mm-hmm. And it's once. And I'm like, well, did you go back? Yeah. Did you go talk to him again? And they're like, well, no, I talked to him once. They said, no. Mm-hmm. Well, you that was a year ago or that yeah. was six months ago. Haven't you yep. made progress? What you know? And so I think that that idea of you want to build a relationship. It's not a. It's not like going to the store and buying something. No, it's, it's not, not a one stop, one meeting kind of event. You really are trying to say, in, in my mind, get over there six months or a year before you think you're going to do it. Get to know them. Get to find out what they're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> I would also add, read their website about what it is they're looking for. That's right. And so. the the dating and marriage analogy is well worn, but. It really is. You need to spend time with them to build the level of trust, to see how you handle problems, and to see, um, you know, small signs of traction. Because we're investing early, we're investing at a right. point where we don't things aren't all figured out, and that's part of the reason you're raising money because you want to figure more things out and grow quicker doing so. So, absolutely, get in front of them, talk to people, talk to me, talk to Federico, talk to anyone at Next Level Ventures. I'll be very happy to help you with yeah. that. Yeah. What's the craziest thing you've ever seen in a pitch? Oh, that's a good question. Um, the craziest thing. Good or bad? I think there's a lot of, I mean, the craziest thing I've ever seen was a virtual reality headset for chickens, which I later found out was a crazy thing just going around. But Craig Ibsen sent it to me as a, we're looking at this company. Let me know what you think over email. And I looked at it and I went, what on earth is this? And they're raising you know, $40 million to build a VR headset for chickens to think they were free range when they weren't. And I kind of looked at it and, and he had got it from an LP of ours as a joke as well. And he, he fooled me. So I looked at that and I said, um, and then he very quickly wrote back and said, don't waste time on it. I was yeah, kidding. Oh, <laughs> like don't spend. Thank you for not wasting my day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't oh spend the gosh, time. So funny. that was pretty outlandish. That's too funny. So how did you come to start Pitchley? Yeah, so I started Pitchley um, while transitioning from Australia. So as I walked out the door of Grant Thornton um, as a corporate finance manager there, I was working with the team at Grant Thornton in Australia and my direct boss managed um, a few thousand people in their corporate finance nationally. And really, it was to scratch my own itch. Um, I knew what they were requiring their team to do to aggregate this information and create content and different um, pieces of insights and even research to better inform their own clients. And I knew that Excel Access PowerPoint was not the way to do that. Um, it was a great way to do it in the late 80s, early 90s. That's right, yeah. But it's um, 2018 last I yeah, checked. In 85 when... Excel came out exactly yes. and so now we're at a point where you know I said that this information is you know needs to be permissioned it needs to be accessible mm-hmm. it needs to be collaborative and actually in a single source and not spread throughout right Excel sheets and flash drives and Dropbox Drivebox. Yeah, yeah which is there's a lot of problems with those so yeah that's how so what problems does Pitchley solve what I mean, at the core because I know you're outselling this product you are mm-hmm. one of your roles is sales what is it that lights somebody up and says, oh, my God, that's it. And we always talk about what's the pain point, right? I always yeah. want to know where the pain is. So I mean, maybe I should rephrase it. What's the pain that yeah. you're after? We have two big pain points we solve. The first is most of our customers that we work with, so we work with law firms, banks, accounting firms, and we're moving into more verticals. But the biggest problem is 
they can't organize their information inside their organization to present to their team to then make decisions on or also present to the market to market themselves. So the number one thing we do is create a single source of client experience for our firms and we organize it and structure it for them. And that can be from other systems, that can be from collection of Excel spreadsheets, that can be PowerPoint or Word documents, but it's, it's bringing that together in a permissioned, secure, safe and easy to use way that a attorney can search um we have customers that do a great job in an sql database but it doesn't allow the business end user to actually see it and access it right um, the second big pain is what do you do with it once you aggregate it yeah um, and so what we've built is a way to automate content production from that data source okay. so that's a, a templating method that transforms information in a database by field or by cell if you're thinking of it that way mm-hmm into a design custom graphic design template so they can reuse it in proposals websites mailers okay um so things like case studies or descriptions of my experience as a team member of that law firm or credentials um in the space we work in we can automate that from their large data sets which is game changing when you have thousands of records in our product yeah. And we can apply templates to that in seconds, get thousands and thousands of pieces of content for them. Oh, to use. interesting. So you talk about law firms. Uh, mm. Is that a, that's a main focus for you? Yeah, that is. Yeah, and, and tell me. Um, so, are you what size law firm? Is it a? Are you serving only the very biggest? Are you serving the mid market? Are you in the small law firms? What where does your product fit? Yeah, so we have customers from uh, fifty attorneys, so about a hundred employees. Um, all the way up to 3,000 employees. Wow. So you're after the big boys. So we're, yes, that's right. And and we kind of survey the different niches for, so the smaller they are, the more they rely on our experience database and processing that information. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bigger they are, the more they rely on the content automation from that data oh, source. So it's, it is a dual problem we're solving. Um, and we have big and small customers that use us for both, obviously. Um, but that's why we can stretch so far. Yeah, that makes sense. So on the spectrum of, uh, you know, startup through first revenue through whatever, where where's your company at right now? Where's Pitchley sitting? Mm. Yeah, so we um, announced a round of funding um, not long ago, actually, a couple of weeks ago. And really, Congratulations, by the way. Yeah, thank you. And so we're sitting really well, um, as you are when you first get funded. Um, we had the... We were fortunate enough to have the traction to get that done and also the vision of where we want to invest in the relationships we've got. Um, Serving firms from 100 employees to 3,000 employees really, um, you know, changes the concept for us and that's not even our biggest. Our biggest customer has 60,000 employees. Wow. Um, So when you're serving that magnitude of organizations, you need to invest in customer relationships. You need to invest in their success. You need to invest in building a better product every day. Um, and so that's where we're at. We're hustling to get new customers and working aggressively on our roadmap and hiring to fulfill that. Yeah. 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 So you have hired quite a few people, if I remember right. Well, first, you were at two, right? I mean, yeah. When you, mm-hmm. when you really, I don't, how long, I should ask, how long have you been working on this before you left NLB? Yeah. So Pitchley has been, um, the original concept was in 2013. Right. And so it's always been kicking around. And then in 2015, I met my co-founder with the technical brains behind what we do. Yeah. Um, and built our first product and got our first customers from there. So this has been 
you know, we're a startup in the sense that we're new to the market and the way we're approaching it, but we're a established business. Yeah. I like yeah. to say we're a fast growing small business rather than a startup. Yeah, no, you are. You're in the growth mode now. I mean, mm. we, the, the word startup gets used a lot, but you're a, a small growth company now yeah. in my mind, in my exactly. way of thinking, because that's what your focus is on grow, grow, grow. Yeah. Uh, so this pitch list, your first company. To, to start, is that correct? First company, um, not my first idea of many. No, well, <laughs> of course. Well, if you if you build a company in your first idea and you you are all this far down the road, you are unique. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, first time you've raised capital. Yes. All right. Mm-hmm. So now that you've been on the other side of the table in this capital raise process, uh, what would you tell investors to do differently? I'm an investor. I mm. mean, because uh, that's a weird experience to be on both sides, right? Yeah. It is. Um, you know, I was, and I think I I was a very unique candidate when raising money. Um, I had worked in venture capital for four years. I knew the ins and outs of really understanding their business as well as my own. And sure. so I think, I think from my perspective is a lot of the time investors say no. And to your point, you know, if you've talked to an investor once, um, you know, you need to keep getting in front of them and be relentless almost yeah. to the point where they say no and then give you the... Re- and a lot of the reasons is not it could be traction, it could be the business, but it mm-hmm. also could be our team's just too busy. Yeah. Um, we're almost closing our first fund. We're doing these other things, you know, where mm-hmm. it's just it needs to align those perfect stars to get that. Yeah. Um, and the sooner you can get there, the better. And then you understand. Um, but I think from investors' perspective, um, I think there's a, you know, the classic... There's not a yes and a no, it's a maybe yeah. in that ongoing. Or not yet. Or not yet. Um, but then the best investors, you know, whether they invested or not, gave good feedback, um, both to their excitement and why they want to do it, and then maybe still what their hesitations are or what we need to prove. I found that very useful. Um, and so all three of our VC investors had that. They said, we love what you're doing. This is what we need to dive into more information on. Right. And this is, you know, this is frankly a hesitation of the deal and what our process looks like you know do you meet the metrics we're looking at how do we benchmark against others um and i i knew to dig those things out like how right. do we stack up versus the other checks you've written how right. do how are we going to rank you know in your portfolio of importance for instance right. um yeah, and right. i think it's you know understanding from their perspective and they're happy to share that with you if you ask the the questions and show an interest yeah and i think you, you hit on a really important point for those that are out there trying to raise capital is one are you even a fit for their fund Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're if someone who's running a fund, there's a very specific set of guidelines. You know, uh, uh, this, these are the kinds of companies we're going to invest in. I know M25 is one of the companies that uh, has invested in your company. And they have a very specific mm-hmm. rule book, whatever you want to call it, guidance on who should and should not. Yeah. And you're wasting their time and yours if you're out there pitching them when they you don't fit the portfolio. That's right. Um, so, and if you do fit the portfolio, you better tell them why you fit the portfolio. I, I, yeah. I said something about reading the website. I am profoundly amazed at the number of startups that don't go and read the websites of the people they're going to go pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when you, and same with Great North Labs, you can download a, a deck on their website that says, this is what we consider product market fit. This many customers, this growth right. rate, this, 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 that. Um, We've given you all the answers. Fill it in. Make yeah. it specific to your company. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think it's, you know, it's not just about doing that once or talking to it. It's, you know, it's continuing to follow up. It took, you know, three different times to get in front of Great North Labs and get to the partner and say, oh, yeah, this looks great. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it also takes time. As you said, M25 is a very rigid process. Yes, um, they do. And then once they take an interest, they move very quickly. So once you get through that, you know, we're a fit because of these reasons and let me talk to someone on your end. Yeah. Um, once you can articulate why you're a fit, why you're different or similar to their portfolio, both are advantages in their game especially. Um, because they're looking to make a lot of bets. So it's, again, understanding their yeah. business. They We just had a conference in Chicago with M25 that I attended, and they want to do 70 investments in Fund One. And so for them, it's about diversification. Right. So my diversification was you don't have an enterprise product like me in your portfolio. You don't have an Iowa company, and you don't have someone that I can tell with a venture capital background. Right. Um, and so those were the three things that I would drive home to them of why I fit into their portfolio and then all the business things as well. Sure, sure. Um, no, that makes so sense. Absolutely. I think people underestimate how many companies these groups look at. Mm. I was at a conference in D.C. earlier this year and Drive Capital was presenting and they were talk. they gave their numbers, and I'm not going to get these exactly right, but they'd looked at somewhere north of 3,800 companies mm-hmm. and made seven investments. Yep. And that just speaks volumes about you've got to bust through Mm-hmm. The the it's like marketing. You've, you've got to bust through all the noise and make yourself look unique in the way they need to see you to get yeah. their attention. So, so you and your co-founder built Pitchley from the ground up. What was that like? Um, how did that go? I mean, you met you met your founder, brand new mm-hmm. meeting to you. So you had to build a relationship along the way. How did that go? Yeah, so we met at a tech brew. Um, really downtown. Cheers. Yeah, in uh, I think it was actually late 2014. And so we met at a tech brew and it was, you know, I overheard him. He was working at Shift Interactive at the time, working on a CMS project that, and he'd also mentioned in passing and he was talking to another group of people, but I heard him talking about another startup he'd made in California that got, you know, very good traction, Mm 100,000 monthly active users, which is, or more than that, which is great. Yeah. Knew that, so instantly I was ticking the boxes. He built something that scaled. He likes working at startups. He's now a consultant, which means, you know, he's working on a lot of projects. So he's got a very and look diverse- And probably looking for another startup because usually what you do, you go yep. consult for a while while you look around. Yep. Um, and he was, you know, very, very smart and a very good compliment to me in the technical side of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from there, we kind of went out for lunch and I showed him what I was working on or um, looking at doing and wanted to know also what he wanted to do. Cause I think that's the most important thing is I could have, you know, very easily assumed he wanted to join, but actually letting him explain to me first what he wanted to do yeah. to get that unbiased feedback. And I like to do that with a lot of people that, you know, I might hire in the future is what do you want in your next role? Right. Um, just to get a sense. And so he, he and I decided then that we wanted to work kind of nights and weekends, if you will, mm-hmm. um, to put that together. And at that point, it was the big technical challenge of getting their heads together. So Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, it's, I think it's extremely important. If you're building a software product, I'd worked with a contractor in Australia and knew very quickly that that wasn't the way to build something that was lasting. Well, and or you better have a one solid design well that's right and the reason i say that because that was my only technical prowess and i couldn't speak to that right firm right um, effectively whereas now with michael we could hire consultants because he can manage that as well right yeah i come from a product design background and we used a lot of contracting simply because we were really good at specification mm-hmm. uh, people would almost be shocked by the amount of specification work we did but what what i would tell them is that was the customer experience speaking. That was all the the you know the knowledge of our customers coming through in a very clear document, yeah. simply to avoid burning, uh, you know, uh, 
programming time. That's right. And there's a few shops that work with you very well, like We Write Code and Shift Interactive, yeah. that are more focused on building that technical yeah. CTO, outsource CTO. It's not a, a, a build-by-the-hour game. It's, it's That's right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. in Australia, I you know contracted with a WordPress shop that one, wasn't a good fit, and two, it was an hourly rate, and that was it. Yep. They didn't really yep. care more than that. Whereas yep. you look at... The firms I mentioned, they care more. They want to see you successful. They're local. They want to build things here. Um, And they want to build you for their own benefit too because the more success you get, the more success they'll be as well. Yeah, without getting too deep into it, you know, as a programmer, I can tell you when I get excited about something and when I kind of engage in it or or buy into what what someone's trying to do, it's fun to write the code. Mm. It's actually enjoyable versus just, hey, do this for four hours. So, yeah, it's a different kind of programmer. So, um, how's your relationship with your found with co-founder evolved? Yeah, it's um, yeah. So we met at the tech brew, so it's evolved now. You know, going on five years, so it's got better and better. I think it's you know we're we're intellectual equals on the parts of the business we focus on, and I think that's really important. So I trust him in the product, and he trusts me running the business. Quote unquote. Right. Right. Um, but also we come together on the vision and the, the product strategy we're doing. And that's right. where we both bring good ideas because one's dealing with customers and one's dealing with product. And then we come together on that. Yeah. So Yeah. And that's got to be a tight connection. That's right. And we've become very close. I mean, you have to. When you're working in that <laughs> high-stress environment, there was one night that we had a, a demo to an association of um, 50 M&A advisors the next morning and we had to stay all night to get it working because it was mm-hmm. just wireframes at that point. It wasn't sure. working. So yeah, we you better have to something put to show them. Yeah. To get it working and get it done. Um, and we did. You know, we were at Gravitate all night oh. um, but got something delivered and it showed really well and we got five people very interested after that. Nice. Nice. So uh, you talked about your split and responsibilities. He owns the product. Yeah. It is he. I don't know who your partner is. Uh, Michael Brook. Yeah, okay, so Michael, Michael Brook. So he owns the product. You really were owning the rest of the company. And primarily that was sales, right? I mean, that was for, in the early days, it was about getting out and selling, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Um, sales, marketing, operations, finance. But yes, just sales. Um, <laughs> you can't have the rest of it without sales. You know, it's, it's a lesson I try to pound into people's heads sales yeah, first. Sales first, exactly. And it really is. There's no, And that was our first job when we first built it is let's get something working that I can sell. And that was my job. And I, I remember telling we had Michael and another um, awesome contractors as well. And I told them, stop working because I need to sell, you know, this product and sell a few versions to figure out where we want to go next. And to figure we out how, how good your fit is. Next, so well, you don't learn. know your fit yet, right? I That's mean, right. you've been selling off a of PowerPoint. Yep. At some point, mm-hmm. you got to move from the pitch deck to the product. And yeah. that's... You know, it's like the old saying, uh, no good strategy lasts past the first engagement. That's right. And, and those early strategies, you have to be ready to do that, and you have to be ready to get it out there. And we, mm-hmm. I know you've seen it too. You get the, the person that's more of the product inventor type that the product's never done. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not perfect yet. Yeah. And it's like it's never going to be until you show it to a customer and get 100 customers on board. That's right. Yeah. And I think I learned a lot working with Michael too. He is a the good kind of perfectionist in the mm-hmm. sense that he builds products that that work extremely well from day one and are well thought out. Yeah. And, you know, in this world of startup where you want a minimum viable product, you want to build something and just get it out, um, I think that almost does a disservice in a lot of respects. I mean, we're selling to firms that are storing important information. They can't have a product that breaks. No. That is a non-starter. Yeah. 
um, and and it it breaks at the best of times, even when you've got someone like Michael in your back tent, because there's just things that happen. But um, you know, I'm very proud to say we've had you know minutes of downtime in four years because of what he's built and how he's architected it to scale. So I think that's a really important thing from day one is finding someone that can you know, be willing to build something and then almost throw it away, but still invest that time at the start to build something that's worth using and worth selling. Well, and I, I, I've told several startups that I work with that are farther down, you know, they've gotten past their, what they call MVP. And I want to come back to what an MVP is, but I tell them you need to budget a rewrite of your product within three years. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just look at me like astounded. And I'm like, seriously, if you're really going to scale, if you, by the time you really figure it out, you will have reworked that code so many times, you know, that you'll probably want to start over. Yeah. And there'll probably be a real reason to start over. And now these days, when you're looking at who's going to acquire you, if you're building for acquisition, you have to be on their tech stack to That's get right. acquired, right? Mm-hmm. So you may have started in one tech stack and then found out that all three of your acquirers are in a different one. Yeah. Hopefully they're all in the same one. But you've got a plan for that. So it's you have to be willing to... Th- throw it away. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of my frustrations as a programmer is by the time I got done writing the code, I wanted to start again because yeah. now I knew how to do it better. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> so you've raised capital. Have you expanded your staff? Um, what roles have you passed on and which ones are you keeping? Yeah, and I think um, it's a great question because I think it's really important that entrepreneurs do this and that I've seen both sides of that equation where leaders can pass on responsibility and not. And to grow an organization, it's important for me to realize that people can do it and they'll do things differently to me and not in the time I would do it necessarily. Right. Um, but that's all of you know becoming a company that's more than one person. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, I'm fortunate to, I've got Michael heading our technology. Um, I've got Tim Dubes heading our marketing organization and Steve Will heading sales. So... Those three areas are, are well um, trodden. And then we've got a customer success person starting with us next week, which is fantastic. Good. good. Um, and she's got great subject matter expertise background. Oh, excellent. So talk the talk. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, from that's a, so critical. From a very large law firm, saw our product, loved it, emailed me and said, how can I be involved? Nice. Um, which is very exciting. So. That's really nice when the industry is, you know, knocking on our door, not just to buy the product, but to actually help us with the vision we've got. Um, and so I really still own, you know, finance operations and then customer success. So that's kind of my role today still. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important. Besides being the CEO. And sales. Yeah. Besides being the CEO. And I still want to sell. I think CEOs can easily step back from sales, but that doesn't help. So I want to continue to sell into Probably forever. I think there's always a component of I it. I would agree. I I learned a lot. Uh, there was a gentleman named Robert Hammer that when we, our company went private, he came in. He was the lead investor, Brought the, got the money together through, um, oh gosh, what was the name of DLJ Sprout Group mm. back in the 80s. And he came in as our CEO, very experienced, and he sold all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was actually something I think there were so many reasons he did it. And I learned so much of the power of having a selling CEO. Yeah. Um, and it was just kind of an amazing experience to see that. Let's go back to MVP for a minute. Um, there's a word in there that, that is that people don't understand that's viable. Mm-hmm. You know, I can 
crank something out that's a piece of junk and make it make it work sort of yeah. but it's not viable and you talked about you know a product that really works and i think that people have to remember that software buyers especially business software buyers have been through several generations of software they're becoming very smart buyers. Mm-hmm. If you're going to sell in the B2B space, especially mid-sized businesses, they're very, very sharp. And you have to be ready to answer all their questions. Yep. And I think the step that a lot of them are missing is going and talking to, as part of their customer you know, ex- exploration, their customer validation, is talking to the tech teams inside mm-hmm. their potential clients and saying, look, we're two years from ever selling anything. Would you just sit down with, with me and tell me, what does it take to be integrated at your company? Yeah, because it is integration. It's not you can't. Nothing is outside the firewall in one respect. Now, especially with security issues, nothing's outside yep. their firewall. Yeah, and it's it's moving to that minimum sellable product. And then I think yeah, you know, the marketing's job is to sell the vision of where you're going. Sure, and sales is to sell the product. But um, in our industry, we look at a lot of build versus buy. So these large mm-hmm. firms have a mm-hmm. lot of resources. They could buy something or build something internally. Right. And our position is that we actually let them do both. So they can buy and then we can build with them. Oh, nice. Because we think that's really important and actually an advantage we've got over a lot of the bigger industry incumbents because if they're buying from our product, if they're talking to the CEO myself, then we can work with them on the roadmap and give them that kind of opportunity to actually invest in the product we've got today that we've you know, used many customers to build and seen a lot of use cases right. as well as build features for them. Um, and we, of course, charge for that. We use pay for priority models. So if it's yep. in our roadmap, you know, pay us in a statement of work and we'll build it for you. Right. Because it's really important to get the customers bought in and excited about that. Well, it is. And I think when the bigger companies stop doing that, they start to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, yes, you're trying to have a, a single code stack. You're trying, you don't want a custom product for everyone. But I had an experience with uh, serving, we served multiple vertical markets and we served the beverage market. It was one of my big markets. We had several hundred beverage distribution companies as customers. And, and this was in the first years of software. So first time they'd ever have a mobile app, first mobile computer. And we learned very quickly that you, what you want to do is gather 10 to 20 of the best of those together and make them an advisory group and run all the crazy ideas because yep. everything was a crazy idea, right? And mm-hmm. some were really crazy good. Uh, but let that group vet them out and help vet out the, the the crazy bad and vet in the crazy good. And I was in a room one time when somebody brought something up and the first response was that was crazy. It was crazy. It was stupid. Mm-hmm. In fact, the word stupid was used. And by the end of an hour discussion, they were like, that's the number one priority. You need to do that now. Yeah. And they were willing to push their own priorities aside for that change. Mm-hmm. Um, we never stopped doing that while I was there because it was just so valuable. And you've got to, exactly, and you've got to, I like that advisory council because you've got to have multiple people interested in it and saying the same thing to want to build it. Yeah. Um, you don't want to take one person's idea and run with it. But no. It, it helps you. We we had great success early on um, winning deals that way because we could say, you know, pay us twenty or 30000 in a statement sure. of work and we'll give, do the statement of work now, but we'll also credit against your first year subscription fee. Of course. So then you get a customer that's paying you today to build something. You can credit part of that or all of that or none of that to a subscription agreement. We were talking earlier about things that the Midwest people could do better, and it's asking for money up front. Mm-hmm. Always ask for money. Always ask for money. I mean, if they're not willing, to, it's, a, it's a soft close. Mm-hmm. If they just say absolutely not, then they're not, you you have to decide are they really going to be a customer? Yeah, you know if they want everything for free forever, you're wasting your time. Mm-hmm. So, 
What do you think the Des Moines startup ecosystem needs to do to grow? I think we need people to be more, and and I kind of suffered with this as well um, with Pitchley, but I think we need to be more collaborative and loud, outspoken, I think, frankly. I mean, you see a lot of startups at other events like the M25 event. I'm going to the Great North Labs event um, on the 17th next month. Um, you know, I go to these events and see other startups on stage and they're, they're bigger and they're bolder and they're louder, yeah, um, whether are. whether or not they've got something or not. It's just <laughs> they are, you know, who they want to be. And They're punching um, through the noise. That's right. And even I met with Microsoft Ventures and they kind of um, said that the biggest difference between the coastal startups and the Midwest is the coastal startups, um, they tell you their projections and their plan and then it's up to you to disprove it. They don't second guess it. They tell you what they're doing and they tell you why they're doing it and then they say, all right, now investors, here's the information. If you don't agree with us, tell us why because we believe this. And he said in a very good panel interview, he said that actually in the Midwest they say, well, this is our projection but we're probably tracking about half that and we don't think – um, you know, we're going to meet this number, and they kind of start second guessing themselves and not. Well, they basically rip through. their own credibility out from under their feet. They do, um, and I think that's just the nature. Where you know, mild mannered here, you know, it's a different ecosystem here. We don't have the, um, you know, flush with capital and the the competitive nature as much either. So that actually is a disadvantage in some degrees. Yeah, here. you're hitting on a good point on the competitive nature. I mean, you, you think of great sports sports athletes, and and they don't fail. Mm-hmm. When they fail, they get up and, and make sure they don't fail, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's right. the whole point is we can't fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, the early lessons in my life of you you have to hit the number. Mm-hmm. It's just not a choice. Yeah, it, it, It's whatever it takes to hit that number. And I think we are missing some of that. Ryan Garrity, thank you for being on Startup Stories. Yeah, thank you, Mike. This has been great. Thanks for listening to Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by this startup story, visit dsmpartnership.com slash business resources to find upcoming events, videos, and other free resources dedicated to helping startups and entrepreneurs accelerate success in DSM USA. That's dsmpartnership.com slash business resources. Thanks for listening.